Welcome to the latest edition of the Crossroads Podcast. I'm John Burke, America's Editor for Information. Joining me today is Judah Gluckman, uh, Principal Consultant of U.S. Advisory Services for WSP and uh, Vice President of the Young Professionals in Infrastructure. And then we have Jeremy Eby and Jed Friedlander, both managing partners in the Phoenix Infrastructure Group. And uh, finally, my colleague, Andrew Vitelli, uh, just added to the crowded house today. Uh, thanks for joining the program today, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. We are headed for a very interesting uh, first 100 days of the Biden administration, which is uh, now, I guess, starting in 40 days' time, in uh, which we are looking for a uh, focus, hopefully, on a coordinated strategy to coordinate a strategy to combat COVID, more economic stimulus, and um, behind that economic, economic stimulus, perhaps, preparations for an infrastructure bill. So, Jed, just to kick it off, wanted to get your um, thoughts about uh, where you see uh, the Biden administration coming in on infrastructure policy uh, and how that uh, might change uh, once the new administration comes in. Sure. Um, so Jeremy and I actually have been, have been interacting regularly with the, the infrastructure, Biden's infrastructure policy team. I think we, we came away from that really focusing on four key areas of the of the Biden Build Back Better plan that relate to to our space to infrastructure. First, and we can talk about them them all a bit after after uh, laying them out. The first one is domestic manufacturing and innovation, pushing pushing that forward. Second is sustainable clean infrastructure. Third is workforce education, and fourth is is racial equity. So those are the, the the four key areas of advancement. I, I think. The way that we think about it, on the first the first prong, domestic manufacturing and innovation, the innovation we've all seen a, a, obviously a lot of innovation during COVID throughout the economy. We haven't really seen it so much filter through to to P three to infrastructure, but I think we will going forward. the The domestic manufacturing is interesting. I mean, not that anyone was thinking that we would we would do away with the Buy American Act, but Trump actually signed a um, an executive order that increased some of the requirements there, particularly for iron iron and steel components. That the the actual component parts of an iron and steel of iron and steel end products need to be now ninety five percent U.S. origin versus fifty percent. So I think it is it will be interesting for some of these larger transportation and infrastructure projects to see if that if that order stands or uh, or is ultimately replaced because that will have a material impact on 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 the cost of infrastructure i think the second prong sustainable clean infrastructure we we also read that to include resilience which is is really becoming a a key topic in in a lot of infrastructure we're, we're thinking about how to how to fund that how to finance it uh, it doesn't have an independent revenue stream so I think that will be key and increased push on, on clean infrastructure. The third and fourth, the workforce education and then racial equity is an area that, that at Phoenix, we spend a lot of time thinking about. We're working on a white paper now with some of our colleagues at uh, AIAI, one of the industry groups. Um, we interpret really this push as meaning, a, as translating into a serious commitment to partnership, not, not just participation, at every level of infrastructure delivery. So talking about development, design, construction, finance, operations, partnership with minority disadvantaged groups, 
in those key delivery uh, modes for a project and think that that, that that really dovetails well with the idea of workforce education where these projects can, can really create an impact, create opportunities for local and disadvantaged groups to improve their level of sophistication and get more involved in, in some of these infrastructure projects. That's, that's kind of where we're focusing and anticipating things are going to go. So to jump in, do you see a Biden administration as being overall supportive of public-private partnerships? Because I remember when his infra plan was, uh, was released over the summer, there was some concern that P3s were somewhat left out of the equation. I guess I'll handle that one, Jed, if, if you don't mind. This is Jeremy Eby. Um, I, I think that they are seen as part of the mix. I think that uh, you do have you, you do have definitely a view that the kind of the, the priorities that Jed mentioned, getting those however you can in the best way and the most equitable way forward is, is the best way to go about it. I think that on the state and local level, obviously the acceptance of P3 has been pretty broad and pretty pretty much, it's, I won't call it unanimous, but unanimous, but it's, it's, it's getting to be, getting standardized every day. Um, I don't think that the administration is against P3s. I definitely do not think that. I think that they, they realize though that they that either however they can this is one of the toolboxes and that, that that's this is a means to get to the real end which are kind of those four points that uh that jed mentioned uh previously but um uh, i don't want to speak for them directly but in, in my in my engagement with them that's that's the, the perspective that i've gotten and this is judah if i could just add a couple of points to that um i, I agree um i think to, to add to it uh, you know it, it sort of depends what happens on the Hill, right? And obviously we've got a, a, a runoff campaign in Georgia that will kind of dictate the majority in the Senate and, and that'll have a big impact on just, just what the potential is for a large stimulus bill, a large infrastructure bill. But either way, I think they're gonna be looking in the background or what are the executive actions that can be taken that, that support that. And, and you know, it's, it's become pretty clear to me in my conversations with folks on the transition that, you know, the, the quick sort of moves are things that, you know, providing technical capacity and supporting and encouraging states and cities to consider these new tools, because particularly if there isn't new funding on the on the federal on the congressional side, you know, you really are going to have to be creative and use more of these P3 solutions. OK, and we'll um, roll back to that in a second. But let's talk about what's going on in uh, states and municipalities today. I mean, there's obviously a fiscal crisis in certain jurisdictions. Uh, such as Chicago. Uh, sorry, Jeremy, but um, yeah. it, it, it is what it is. Um, and then, you know, there's obviously some concern about, you know, if P3 projects get launched, not ones that are funded already, of course, we have to make that distinction. You know, how are they going to get funded? Is there going to be a greater shift into the private sector? Or will the tax exempt market um, also still be a, continue to be a viable funding source? We've already seen two P3-linked bond deals get very favorable pricing in the past few weeks, and we're going to probably see the results of a, a third one probably coming up this week uh, or next week. So what do you got, Judah? I think you wanted to take this one. Uh, what's your thoughts on the public versus private sector risk for projects in the pipeline? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think for, for all the reasons Jeremy stated earlier, you know, both are going to be important, viable tools uh, to, to delivering infrastructure. Obviously, with, with COVID, you know, having a pretty, pretty dramatic effect on revenues for, for cities and states, um, they are having to be more creative. And, and you know, that, that, that necessity really is the mother of invention. So 
Um, I think we will see more reliance on P3s, but but P3s that are paired with ultimately finding new funding, finding new revenue. So, you know, different forms of value capture uh, that say, you know, we've got this underutilized asset that maybe has some private commercial potential, you know, creating new energy that may have, you know, a, a value, you know, finding other efficiencies. It's those kinds of projects that um, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of, whether they're using tax exempt or private financing. Yeah, one of those deals, of course, was uh, issued by um, Georgia, um, the, the Garvey bonds. They were able to raise 400 million plus and it priced yesterday and um, they did allocate uh, a sliver, I think 100 billion or so towards uh, the SR400, which will be a prominent availability payment based um, P3 um, where you're going to, you know, you're supposed to get a proponent status probably uh, by mid the middle of next year, if not a little bit later. But that was a... a Georgia dot ahead of the curve kind of bond offering um, and he kind of wondered if there's more that's going to come out of G dot you know since they do have six um, projects they're currently contemplating under that MMIP program that uh, they've, they've prepared uh, and also there's always the thought that there's going to be another broadband project also in the pipeline from them so they're going to have a probably a busy 2021 and 2022 for themselves. So let's get shift to the one of those funding sources which is private activity bonds with bonds issued and those allocated out of the program. So they are running up against the cap. Wanted to know if you guys are getting any hints out of Washington, uh, particularly with the Maryland Madge project on the horizon of there being a new deal to be had, if there's gonna be a lift, a li uplift on the cap of some sort. So uh, Judah, Jed, I'm not sure if we wanted to take this one, but you go ahead. Yeah, I can take a first crack and others can feel free to chime in. I mean, I think if any kind of transportation bill happens, then there's there's an extension or an increase of the cap on PABs and and you know, Tiffia with you. They've they've seen recent increases as well, similarly for that reason. They are just proven successful tools to to make projects happen. Um, you know, they're certainly not the sole financing source that happens in almost any of their projects. They can't be, but you know, they they get projects done, they bring costs down um, and make them possible. And I think they have bipartisan support for that reason and we'll continue to see that happen. And, and there's been really strong advocacy, um, not just from our industry, but really people across, across the sort of infrastructure spectrum. So I think, you know, we absolutely have to keep an eye on it, but I think it'll, it'll be, you know, increased as needed. Yeah, I'll, I'll back Judah on that, 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 uh, that the number one thing is that well, two things to note is that there is broad broad support across the aisle and across industries p3 traditional traditional as well as your traditional bond financing for increasing pavs at every juncture in which it's kind of hit up increasing the pav limit every time that it's kind of hit that or gotten close to that limit and when you look at the latest projects that are that are that have been allocated for this past year and those are some very good ones uh the one i, I thought you were going to mention john was uh, prince george's county schools which i believe got priced you, the activity that you know the that there is definitely uh, every time it's kind of come up for for increasing the limit it, it has gone there and I think that you know when you look at at uh, no matter what the infrastructure stimulus bill or whatever it ends up being will be um, PABs will be definitely on the menu because of the the uh, optionality that they provide in financing projects and, and if you if you take a look at and you can find this on the Transportation, you know, USDOT, USDOT website, you'll see just the variety of projects that they've gotten into that they've been involved in. Um, I'm just remembering street lighting, DC street lighting is on there and Prince George's County 
also involved as well as um, as well as uh, you, you mentioned Mar uh, Fargo, Moorhead, and a few other projects yeah. that are just a variety of, of, uh, of projects related there. So, so I, my point is that that program is pretty much standardized and pretty much set in its its uh, value add to the to bringing forward projects. So expect to see that continue. Yeah, I guess I'd, I'd add. I think you'll see. I think you'll see some creativity here. I mean, I think you know we're seeing hits to local, you know, state, local, and and federal coffers. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see, you know, Build America bonds uh, being discussed again. Um, I we've we've already seen infrastructure projects, P three projects, developers being asked to incorporate land value, real estate value, development rights in certain projects. I'm thinking in particular of some of the some of the rail projects in, mm -hmm. in Florida, uh, some of the Brightline projects that. Uh, but I could, you know, there's there's certainly a, in social infrastructure you see that pretty frequently as well. I would expect to see more of more creativity there, more ways to pull in additional value into a P3 structure. So going into um, the P3 market, what particular uh, sectors do you think will be highly relevant in 2021, and and why is that? Judo, I think before uh, the podcast, we talked about um, your interest in water and water projects. So why don't you um, go outline that a little bit for us? Yeah, sure. Thanks. I mean, I think, uh, you know, WSP, we advise a ton of water authorities from across the country, really, you know, entire world. But, um, you know, our focus, my immediate focus is, is North America. And, you know, across the board, those those entities are looking, I mean, they have huge needs uh, and, and it's harder and harder to find the funding and resources locally in their own budgets. Um, so they're having to be re creative, be resourceful. And so you're, you're seeing actually, you know, not just uh, drinking water and wastewater and this, those sort of key projects that are fundamental to what they do, but they're looking outside the box a little and, and finding um, things like energy creation, um, you know, using new technologies like anaerobic digestion, you know, thermal energy from the, the waste in their pipes and the heat that that creates, even to the point of uh, selling fertilizer that they create from their waste. So they are finding as many new tools and funding solutions that sort of offset their costs and, and help them deliver what they need to. And in the process, you know, it helps them avoid raising rates on, on their, their taxpayers, their, their residents, their citizens. So um, it's a lot more politically palatable as well. And those are the kinds of projects that are, are in some ways really ideally suited to P3s because it's it's not part of the Water Authority's core fundamental business uh, that they don't want to let go of. Uh, that they you know don't feel the need to max you know max out their control on and so and, and they're also new technologies and new sort of uh you know whole life cycle projects that involve not just the design and construction but you know operations and maintenance as well and and can be kind of standalone one-off projects so they're really you know really important have great potential but but even ideally suited to a p3 uh, for all those reasons yeah, the, um, you know, as usual with infrastructure, Canon is leading the way so far as uh, being the predicator of exactly what you talked about. You have uh, Halifax just awarding their organics project, uh, Edmonton um, probably awarding theirs next year. I believe we have a project in on Ontario as well. They're just busy, busy up there. In the U.S. so far, we've seen Lake Oswego, right, as, as um, you know, advancing probably into 2021. And Santa Clara had a sort of a, a water project, I guess they were in RFI in the spring, which we heard might be going, advancing soon. Anyway, so it's it's certainly a busy space and certainly I think 
hopefully some of these provincial projects will rub off on some uh, more activity in the states at some point. So, Jed, we moving over to the uh, university space um, where uh, we've been busy writing about it and uh, most of the P3 community has been invested in um, these projects as a result. Uh, not from us, of course, but um, from the public interest, uh, you have universities with 200 to 300 year old history, very ancient energy systems. Um, some of these bigger state schools with uh, state renewable initiatives. Um, it's kind of a no brainer at a certain point where you think, oh, an uplift's needed. We need to change the way we do business. And plus, um, as often in infrastructure, you guys talk about, well, what's core to what people do and what's non-core to what they do. And universities don't do energy, they do education. Do they run power facilities? Yes, because they have to, but this is where there's an infrastructure, there's a P3 project in, uh, on the horizon. And we've seen a lot of this as of late. Jed, we were talking about universities, but then also maybe extending to the, the concept of district energy, which is what we're talking about here with universities and district energy also moving to maybe municipalities as well. So Jed, why don't you expound on that a little bit? Um, and also if you could maybe talk a little bit about um, how public and private universities are approaching these projects as well, that'd be interesting to hear. Yeah, happy to. I mean, the district energy space is one we've been following for really 20 years. And I think, you know, there's a wave, of, there was a an initial wave of these almost 20 years ago, and everybody anticipated there'd be a lot more. Um, but that's really only recently started. And the deals that, that are, that, that you're really seeing uh, get done in the market are you know, some, there's, there's a monetization component to it. So, I think looking forward, we're all talking about we're all talking about the budget impact of COVID. Universities are feeling that, you know, just as much as just as much as municipalities. One way that the universities, I think, will will continue to look to fill those gaps is by these district utility projects, which are, you know, they're in a sense their monetizations in that a development team is coming in and, and writing a check and uh, either either you know in some cases actually buying uh, the the district utility buying all of the buying all the systems that are that are supplying the campus in other cases coming in and, and buying buying into a long-term power purchase agreement a long-term offtake agreement sometimes it's a hybrid of those I, I think that those structures have a you know they can really be positioned as win-win deals the university can plug a, a short-term gap and the developer can can afford to take a longer term perspective on when demand is going to resume. You know, these are can be 30 year plus deals in some cases. So even if even if you're concerned about demand right now, people aren't back on campus. Uh, developers can take a view that, you know, three years plus out, things will return to normal uh, and we can bank and that's something we can bank on. So your question, I, I, I do see this likewise happening on some municipal scale, um, particularly in, in, in cities, towns that have a municipal center, a civic center with multiple buildings. Sometimes they have their own, their own utilities uh, at each building that can be, can be consolidated uh, and improved. A lot of the story here is also you're, you're getting a big capital improvement. These, these projects generally coincide with, with the need for for capital improvements, the need to increase renewables mix, make things more efficient. So I could, and certainly at a, at a municipal level, you know, given what's going to happen to budget, what's happening with budgets there, that that upfront check could go very far. Great. And any other comments uh, on this one? 
Jeremy, do you? Yeah, I was going to say there's one there's one piece I, I thought, um, you know, along with water and kind of your more social infrastructure, transit we think is 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 a point for discussion in a lot of ways. Um, kind of hits at the nexus of, of what we all talk about at infrastructure, um, creating jobs, creating value, and, and adding value to communities, and, and in particular, in this case, helping people uh, get from from point A to point B, in many cases, essential workers and and um, and those that really, really have to physically be at their jobs. I mean, they, people that work, you know, in hotels, people that work, you know, work the cash register, they, they need a way to get to work that is cheaper than buying a car and paying for parking and paying for insurance and, and all those different pieces. So, you know, we, we think that's going to be a space that, especially in the, the conversation, of, of, of equity, work equity, the conversation of developing communities we think is going to be pretty good. Tran not only transit, but transit-oriented development we think are going to be pretty much a pretty pretty well-focused asset class to look at. Uh, it's definitely going to be one when, when, when the surface transportation bill comes out, there's going to be conversation on how to distribute funding versus roads versus transit. Uh, you, know, you can imagine that that conversation is shaping I hope it's le it's much less of a political conversation than it, it has been traditionally, but I think that's one that a conversation to be had. Uh, just financing transit, and also geographically, it is it is a conversation. It, more of your northern and northeastern cities, and including where I'm from, Chicago, you know, the issue is maintenance. How do you properly incentivize investors and investment in maintaining older facilities that are extensive and really detailed uh, systems? Whereas the issue in your more suburban Southeast, Southwest United States is simply building a system that will centralize your, your urban regions, your, your densify your urban, urban centers uh, and provide access uh, to folks that are coming from other pockets to those urban centers. And then also basically uh, creating value for those in those communities as well through transit. So you've got incentive on, on, on both sides to invest in transit, be it more regions without extensive transit systems and you're seeing you're seeing transactions happening there i'm thinking about uh, south florida miami in particular uh you're seeing that activity in in, in uh, texas particularly in austin we might have discussed the uh, seven billion dollar bond uh offering that, that austin did and uh you know you, you have your sepulveda project out in la there are a variety of projects jacksonville doing bus rapid transit there's a variety of projects in which there the, there there will be innovative finance necessary, um, but there the demand is there. And, and then when I talk about Northeast, MTA, MBTA come to mind, and those are basically really putting in capital to really maintain those systems, which are currently under some levels of, of disrepair, to be honest. So uh, we think that's going to be a big a big big piece for the next 20, 30 years. Yeah, and let's not uh, forget uh, my home state in New Jersey uh, using this technique to uh, mm -hmm. find funding to, to renovate Metro Park, which is a major mm -hmm. hub. Uh, um, and then uh, with uh, Liberty State Park as well in Jersey City. And then, uh, you know, away from TOD, but also on trains, trying to put up a transit grid system, which, you know, honestly could be mm -hmm. pretty revolutionary if it comes out the way as intended, but it's still uh, very mm -hmm. much in the early stages there. So. Yeah, if there's there's no region you can't point to where this is not an issue. Here in D.C., WMATA uh, definitely has its issues. Judah can talk to that more than I can, um, but uh, it it is it's just it's it, we're at that stage where where I don't think you can point to any 
any region where this issue, where this this opportunity for investment and improvement has not come up and is not is not really before us. Uh, Andrew, David, any more follow up questions? Yeah, one thing I was going to ask, um, and you guys have touched on this. How do you think transportation is going to look different in a post-COVID world? Yeah, so I, I definitely have some thoughts. You know, I, I think once we have a vaccine and then, you know, we can all speculate as to when it's going to be widely available and, and adopted. But I think many people are thinking, you know, tr transit will go back to, to being normal uh, at that point and people will feel comfortable and safe doing so. Obviously, it's seen a huge hit in recent recent months for, for good reason. Um, uh, but I think what's really going to change and impact and cities are going to have to think through is the change in land use patterns and, and the way people work and where they live and work and, and commute and, and what that looks like. And so I think... You know, the cities that are smart about it, and they've already been thinking about it even before COVID, was how do we have these complete communities that are not just, you know, all office, all commercial, and, and they're super busy during the day, and then everybody commutes out to the suburbs. Um, it really is, you know, having that mixed use, um, vital downtown 24-7. Um, and so in some ways that makes transit uh, still critical, but, but it, it, you know, flattens out the peaks and, you know, rush hours and, and means that you're using the system, you know, throughout the day in different ways. And that allows you to do some cheaper op options like micro mobility, like scooters, like uh, electric bikes and, and those sorts of things that we're seeing, you know, in, in the big cities and are starting to make their way out to, to other places as well. So in some ways, maybe that, you know, takes the burden off, uh, you know, the heavy rail and, and bus a little bit, but but allows them to get more dedicated, reliable customers who are, who are you know, using their services all the time. Great. Yeah, I, thought it was, I thought it was interesting to see, you know, Uber getting rid of their self-driving car division um, this week. That was a, you know, a trend that we were all, that was an industry, a sector we were all looking at. Uh, and wondering how it might change, you know, urban development and, and, and a lot of these commuting micro transit issues. So I'm still hopeful that will that will come, but maybe have to wait a bit longer. All right, gentlemen, well, that's about all the time we have. Thank you for coming on today's program and uh, look forward to having you on another day soon. Uh, thanks again and uh, work out. <laughs>